Hey friends, I'm Christine Chappell and you're listening to the Hope and Help podcast from IBCD, where we host biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. In this episode, we're bringing you a recent Facebook Live panel discussion about the lost theology of biblical friendship. The conversation features Scott Mail, Jonathan Holmes, and Curtis Solomon. For more help on the topics we discussed today, visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help where you can access notes from today's episode and browse related resources from our digital library. Good morning, everyone. I'm Christine Chappell. I have with me this morning uh, Curtis Solomon, Jonathan Holmes, and Scott Mail. You may be familiar with these gentlemen. They are active in the biblical counseling community, but I would like to take a few minutes to give each person an opportunity to introduce themselves. Curtis, you'll be our first person to introduce yourself, so why don't you go ahead and say hello? Yeah, well, Christine, thanks so much for having me. It's exciting to be here with you this morning, and I'm thankful for IBCD and the ministry there at the Institute of Biblical Counseling and Discipleship. My name is Curtis Solomon. I'm the executive director of the Biblical Counseling Coalition. I'm married to Jenny. We've been married for over 17 years now. We have two wonderful boys, and I recently finished my PhD in Biblical Counseling at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and just to have lots of wonderful opportunities to serve in biblical counseling through teaching and training and and as in counseling as well and getting to do great things like this. So thanks for having me. Well, thank you for being here, Curtis. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're super busy, so I'm very thankful. All right, Jonathan, you're up. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Well, thanks, Christine. Like Curtis said, uh, it really is a joy to be with you and be with Scott and Curtis as well. And I've been looking forward to it. I, I'm here in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, I'm married to my wife, Jennifer. We've been married 15 years this uh, November, have four children, and uh, I serve as the pastor of counseling at Parkside Church and then also as the executive director at Fieldstone Counseling. And I serve on the Biblical Counseling Coalition with Curtis and on the board of directors at CCEF. A lot of activities going on. I, don't, I, I see all the comment or the post and the content that you're producing through Fieldstone mm-hmm. and is you've got a really amazing team that Thank you've established you. there. All right, Scott, you're up. Yeah, so um, it, it is such a blessing. It's really just an honor to get to be with you guys and to get to, I, I'm excited to get to just interact and, and, and talk over these, these topics and, and particularly the topic of friendship for men is something that I think that even in the church, we don't talk nearly enough about. And uh, it's such a, a, a sweet opportunity because it's, it's really at the core of our, not just of our counseling ministry, but of our, of our faith, right? Of God's mm-hmm. call in the midst of life. So any, anyways, I, I'm, I'm excited about this. I'm uh, located in Los Angeles, on the west side of Los Angeles. Uh, I've been the pastor of Cornerstone Church of West LA for this year, it'll be 15 years. I started as a church plant and we're um, been married 17 years and have have four kids as well. And so we've been navigating this this online thing. If my kids see me on Zoom this morning, they they, they might gag. I think they're done with Zoom. Um, but but, uh, but yeah, it's a it's a blessing to be here. Well, yes, I think we're all uh, maybe Zoom experts at this point. And I know even just before this call, my husband was scrambling to get the children out the door for the second baseball game already this morning. (laughs) And so, yeah, it's always kind of hectic to get ready for these things. Uh, But anyways, it has been a blessing to be able to use the technologies available to us to still fellowship together and provide instruction like we are going to be doing this morning. So thank you all for joining us. I'm really thankful that the Lord 
cleared schedules and made this possible for us. Let's go ahead and dive right in to our first question. I think it'll be really helpful to uh, have Jonathan actually go first and just set the stage for how the scriptures show us the value of Christ-centered friendships and maybe even some biblical narratives we can turn to, to really just take a closer look at what even that means. Yeah, it's a great question, Christine. I think we really want to endeavor to, to root this discussion in scripture. And, you know, from the vantage point of just the narrative of scripture, I really think in some ways you could call it a story of friendship, essentially, that from the very beginning, we're designed as human beings to be not just in relationship, but to be in a relationship that has a goal. And that goal is to image God and that community and that relationship that we have the opportunity and really the privilege of being in really brings God glory as he exists in a Trinitarian relationship. And you kind of follow the narrative of scripture through, you see in Genesis 3 that that friendship and that intimacy is broken through the fall. And there's this wonderful passage in Genesis 3 where it says that the Lord is kind of walking in the garden in the cool of the day, looking for Adam and Eve. And that idea of walking in the garden was this really beautiful Hebrew metaphor for friendship and kind of just reminds us of that practice that the Lord had every day of just walking in friendship with Adam and Eve. And now that friendship in many ways is broken. And uh, you're kind of looking forward then ahead in the story of what what kind of sets friendship right again, what makes all of the brokenness, the difficulties and hardships and relationships better. And so when you get to the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John and John 15, that upper room discourse, and, and Jesus is looking at the disciples, and he says, hey, no longer do I call you servants, but I've called you friends. And I really think that's one of the sweetest passages in scripture. You know, we've been, we've been hostile, we've been enemies, we've been weak, we've been sinners, estranged, et cetera. And just this wonderful moment of intimacy where, where Jesus Christ looks at us and says, hey, you're friends. You know, you were brought back to the Father. And you look ahead then to Revelation. I think the, the beauty of that is not that other types of relationships aren't important, like marriage or parents and children. But there's a little bit of of a relationship in heaven where we're all equal. It's peer-to-peer. It's brothers and sisters in Christ, Revelation 7, worshiping God perfectly together. And like Scott had said earlier, I don't think we probably talk about friendship enough, but I really think as you look at scripture, it's it's really all over the place for sure. Thank you for just kind of setting the stage uh, for us with a, a overview, a perspective yeah. <laughs> of of friendship and its and its value. Scott or Curtis, do either of you have anything to add to that? I'm not sure, Jonathan, if I had totally appreciated just the the picture of friendship that walking in the that the walking yeah. in the garden is. I, mm-hmm. I love that picture, yeah. and there is a one anotherness that is. There's something about friendship that I think, to your point, is eternal. Yes, right? there's an eternal yeah. nature of this, and mm-hmm. and I, I mean, even my wife and I talk about this, right? Like our, our marriage isn't eternal; it exists here on this earth, and it, yeah. but but our friendship is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and there's and there's a really unique way we get to image God in relating to one another. I think you, you go back to Genesis. There's this picture mm-hmm. of how when God said it wasn't good that the man was alone. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just that he needed a wife, right? Right. That wasn't. Yeah. I don't think that's even primarily a, mm-hmm. a, a comment on marriage. Yeah. It was a comment on community, right? It yeah. was a comment on, on on personhood. And it wasn't good that he was alone because God, he was created to image God, right? And God mm-hmm. has existed eternally, like mm-hmm. as you said, in three persons. I mean, which mm-hmm. is, again, kind of a, a, a mind-melting <laughs> mystery in and mm-hmm. of itself. But we, we get to experience that and, 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 and can't image him isolated. Yeah. And yeah. so it's in 
every different relationship, we get to to, to image him and experience the the image of him in, in unique yeah. ways, which I think gives this this depth to friendship. It's, it's not just you know something you need if you're weak or lonely, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's something fundamental to our humanity. Yeah. Jonathan, you mentioned about you know, we're no longer enemies with God through Christ, that Mm -hmm. we are now his friends. And so I actually want to segue that to Curtis then. Uh, Curtis was going to present a workshop at the IBCD Summer Institute on the topic of friendship with our enemies. And so, you know, somehow, Mm -hmm. I mean, through the gospel, the Lord Jesus has reconciled enemies Mm -hmm. of God to God. So how does the gospel then empower Christians to do likewise in the horizontal relationships mm-hmm. that they have? Curtis, can you talk a little bit about how it's possible to experience some kind of biblical friendship with our enemies? And if so, what does that look like practically? Yeah, absolutely. It was a great question. I was really excited to teach on the topic. So I'll try to limit my hour-long talk to <laughs> Uh, a few minutes. Uh, really, I, I looked at Romans 12 primarily as the text that was going to drive that conversation. And people, a lot of times, I think, are tempted to jump to the end of Romans 12, where it specifically addresses uh, how to treat those who are enemies. But I really think it's important to set it in the context and the broader backdrop of Romans 12 as a whole, but then in, in the context of Romans. And really, the book of Romans is describing the glory of God manifest through his redemptive plan. And you see Paul laying that out through the first half of the book and and more. And then 12 and and beyond begins to flesh out how that redemptive plan changes our lives and changes us, especially in context of relationships. And so it's always important to start there to recognize that we don't just enter into relationships in a vacuum. They're set in the context of of pursuing God's glory, as Jonathan obviously articulated that really well earlier. Another thing I like to point out, which is in Romans 12 as well, is that it's not always possible to have a friendship with your enemies. Romans says, as long as it is possible with you, be at peace with all men. And I think it's helpful to to have that as a caveat, especially I know people like me who struggle with people pleasing, who always want people to be happy with us and to really believe I can make anybody my friend to recognize it's not always possible. And so we do our part. We trust the Lord and then we have to leave it in his hands as to whether or not that other person is going to reciprocate. So keeping those things in mind, I think it's uh, important then that we remember God's glory. We remember that it's not always possible, but then we pursue the relationship first and foremost by pursuing humility. And if you look throughout Romans chapter 12, this is the, the chapter that begins with the well-known verses that Paul says, I beg of you, brethren, that you lay down your lives as a living sacrifice to God. So we're immediately going into it, pursuing humility, putting ourselves down, and, and God first and foremost, and then others second. And then in verse 3, he talks about, do not think more highly of yourself. Verse 10, give preference to one another. Verse 16, don't be of a haughty mind. Uh, don't be too wise in your own estimation associate with the lowly, you know, so humility is just all throughout this passage. And it's important that we come with that mindset to any relationship, but especially when you start to think about people who you would classify as an enemy, it's very important that we, that we have that mindset of humility. And then I I really want to challenge people to think through uh, recognizing true friends and true foes. Because I think especially if you think about the context we're living in right now in our world, there are a lot of what I would call imaginary enemies. 
people who are getting very hostile and upset at other people who aren't genuinely enemies, but maybe they disagree with you on something. Uh, maybe you don't like a way that they said something, but that doesn't make somebody an enemy. And we, we, we live in this culture now, especially, and it's, I'm sure it's existed throughout humanity, that if I disagree with somebody, I don't, I can't just disagree with them. I have to attack them and make them an enemy. And really, we as Christians should fight against that. And that's one of the reasons I love the Biblical Counseling Coalition and what our mission is of really bringing unity to the Biblical Counseling Movement is we gather people who have different perspectives, but a, a, a joint central values and a, and a mutual respect for one another. And we can come together and discuss things that we disagree on. We disagree on sometimes passionately, but that doesn't make that person my enemy. Uh, and then we have people who we might perceive as our enemies, but it's just because they're not like us or, or uh, we don't like them. They don't like us. There's personality conflicts, things like that. That doesn't actually make somebody an enemy. But then, then there are people, and I think there's kind of soft enemies and hard enemies. And I think a soft enemy is somebody who's standing in opposition to you constantly, who's, who's trying to thwart what you're about, trying to impede uh, what the Lord has, has put you on this earth to do. And then there's what I would call a hard enemy, like a real enemy. And uh, being a veteran and working a lot with veterans, I know people who've lived the actual experience of people who are trying to kill you, right? And when you look at, at the world history, this has been a more common experience for a lot of people than many in the relatively peaceful Western cultures have experienced. So for a lot of us in the United States, we haven't lived somebody trying to kill me. But when Paul's writing in the Roman Empire, and he's writing to Jews who are living in, a, in an occupied land, actual literal physical enemies were very prevalent. So he's giving really great examples. And I think if you actually, the a great thing that Paul does is he uses these wonderful logical arguments, and you argue from the greater to the lesser in a sense. If Paul is calling us to love actual, real, hard enemies, people who are trying to harm you or kill you, or actually, uh, you know, desiring to, or actually attempting to, how much more then should we be able to love these other people who are not actually our enemies? Um, and then he gives really, really great practical tips on, on how to do that. Pray for them. Don't seek revenge. You know, they are going to act evil towards you. That word there is a strong word, and he uses it multiple times, saying these are people who are actually trying to execute evil against you. They're trying to persecute you. And he says, pray for them. Don't respond in like, but instead overcome evil with good. And he gives practical examples of meeting physical needs and all of these things. So obviously, you go on and on and on. But I think setting a, a broader framework for people to really think about and understand the relationships they're entering into and then seeing that the, if God loved me, who was, who was an enemy of God, and he transformed me into being his friend and even a joint heir with Christ, right? That's how we're described in Romans 8, that we are brothers and sisters with Christ. Oh, my word, that's, that's amazing. How much more than should I, a wicked, vile person, be able to love those who are actually trying to kill me, maybe don't like me? disagree with me, et cetera, and then living out those ways in really practical steps. I'm really thankful that you circled that back around to God's love, because without a firm understanding and acceptance and embrace and even a belief that, that in Christ, 
God loves you. He loved you before you even knew Christ so much that he sent his one and only son to die for you. We need to have that understanding, be rooted in God's love in order to be able then to give that love to those who don't deserve it, just like God did. And so I actually want to now segue over to Scott, because I'd love for Scott to talk about the topic of biblical love and how, you know, obviously Curtis just shared some ways maybe we can show love to our enemies in a biblical way, but maybe more a broad application, Scott, how can we take intentional steps to demonstrate biblical love in the context of just our everyday friendships? Yeah, I I first just want to say, Curtis, man, that's such a good word, such a needed one right now. I think that there is, I mean, divisiveness, the divisiveness in the world, like the world is built to be divided and divisive, and that seeps into the church in so many ways. And I'm struck maybe afresh by your appeal to see even our call in love, not just at the end of Romans 12, but in the entire chapter, right? In this humility that, that doesn't think of myself more highly than I ought to think, that recognizes that we have different gifts according to your gifts, and, and, that, and that uses those gifts to bless others. And I, I think that, that that anger and that divisiveness causes us to withhold our gifts. To answer your, your question, Christine, I think what love looks like is, is actually using those gifts. Love is active and it's engaged. And I think like all relationships and like, like all wisdom, it starts with just knowing one another and taking time to actually get to know what can bless someone. Right? In order to love them, like love someone, you, you, have to, you have to know them, and which involves taking time to be quiet and listen, which again, I think sometimes our, our, the, the divisiveness in our world fights against that. Right. And instead of listening, we just we want to talk and we want to exhort and we want to express. But God calls us to to listen, right? right? Proverbs eighteen tells us if one gives an answer before he hears, that's his folly, right? That's his shame. And so if we're gonna love one another, I think it means taking the time to figure out where one another is at, how we can speak truth, how we can serve, what we can do to to genuinely bless one another, to, to genuinely work for one another's good. And and then I think beyond listening, genuine love involves speaking truth, but it also involves so much more than speaking truth, right? It it involves patiently, gently serving one another, caring for one another, uh, meeting one another's needs, and and, and even when it's difficult, bearing with one another. We see this in, I think, of like 1 John 3, right? When when John writes, "By, by this we know love, that Christ laid down his life for us. It's interesting because in defining friendship, he says that the most significant thing Jesus did for us wasn't what he taught. It's what he did, right? And you can't, like, separate those two. I don't mean to separate them, right, what he taught from what he did. But the reality is, right, it, it, was, an, it was an act of service. It was an act of love. It was an act of sacrifice. That is the thing we continue to point back to and say that's what we're supposed to be like. Um, that that's what we're striving to be like as we as, mm-hmm. as we follow Christ. And then he, go, he goes on and says, but, but if anyone has the world's goods, and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Call to love in deed and in truth. And I think that's important to in these biblical friendships because it's the very definition of friendship, right? To, to both be speakers of truth, but also to be livers of that truth, mm-hmm. to be demonstrators of that truth. I've been meditating in my devotions recently, just that, that chapter I've like, haven't been able to move on from like John 14 and John 15. Mm-hmm. I just keep coming back and I'm like, I don't, I don't think I get this. <laughs> like there's just so much here. Um, mm-hmm. But when, for Jesus to say, I don't call you s- servants, but mm-hmm. I call you friends is overwhelming. Mm-hmm. 
And what he means by that is, is I, I've loved you. And I'm going to love you in the, the most sac- personally sacrificial, practical ways through what I do and through what I say. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to lead you to truth. I'm going to do so. But we, as we see throughout the Gospels, right, he does so, so gently, so patiently, so enduringly with the disciples. That's the snapshot, right? That's the picture of what friendship, what genuine biblical love looks like for us is that kind of patient, genuine, gentle acts of service and and teaching that really is all about helping one another become more like Jesus. Really, really great reflections to think about, Scott. Thank you. I I think when we hear these types of, you know, little snippets, these audio clips, and we're like, yes, I love that. (laughs) That sounds great. But then we have the sin and that yeah. really interrupts a lot of things, especially relationally. Yeah. You know, we, we may really look at Christ, the picture of friendship in him and how he laid down his life uh, to reconcile us to God. And, and we think it's beautiful and it's awe-inspiring. We're like, I want to be like that. But then someone steps on our toes or then mm. something doesn't go our way or whatever the in- interruption might be. And friendships can actually start to fall apart because mm. of our inability sometimes to get out of our own way and to lay ourselves down for the sake of other people or to put others needs as higher than our own so I'd love to have Jonathan step in and answer our question because I think he has some biblical wisdom to share in regards to what happens when friendships fall apart Jonathan would you take some time and just unpack that a little bit what we can watch out for and then maybe what we can do to make sure that doesn't happen yeah such a good question. And I, I wrote a book on friendship and that book on friendship grew out of a series of talks that I had done for a, another fellow counselor, Paul Tout, just at his church. Uh, it was a men's retreat. And so we spent five or six sessions unpacking biblical friendship as it related to guys. And as I was working with the publisher on the book, he said, no, you actually can't write just about guys. He goes, guys don't care about friendship and guys don't read books. He goes, you've got to make the book more broad. Uh, because women, women are interested in friendship, but not guys. And and it was just a telltale sign of just where we're at culturally, really where we're at as a church that I think that we really are at an epidemic with men, not not even understanding the value of friendship, which is why a conversation like this in some ways might be provocatively helpful for a guy to say, hey, I, I actually do need friends. Friendship, you know, R. Kent Hughes says friendship's not optional. Right. It's not like your listeners today, you know, some of them are saying, well, you know, I'm more of like an INFJ or I'm a one, you know, I'm the Neogram. I don't really need a friend. That's that's not really presented to us as a biblical option that, that our design is for connection. So if there's a guy out there that says, well, I actually don't need a friend, I would say you do. It's not optional. You got to have it. The next problem I think that faces guys is we have we have this word that we use and we throw around a lot in the church since being intentional. Oh, we just want to be more intentional with friendships. And I actually don't like that term. I think a lot of friendships die in the graveyard of good intentions. A lot of guys out there might have some good intentions like, oh, I want to be a good friend. But that doesn't do anything. An intention doesn't make a friendship. Intentions have to be executed into reality. You actually have to do something. And that's that biblical love ethic that both Curtis and Scott, I think, were noting. Love moves you outside of yourself. You can have the best intentions of the world as a guy. You can want to have friends. You can want to be a good friend, but you actually have to do it. You got to get off your butt. You got to go find somebody, take them out to coffee, play a round of golf, do a study. You actually have to do it. And I, I, I honestly find a lot of guys are just lazy. 
they don't want to put in the work and the effort. Uh, they don't see the value in it. Uh, there's proximity issues. I mean, we could go into a whole, you know, another category of sociological implications that keep guys from friendship. Uh, but I find that those are the two biggest ones, not seeing the value in it into just being lazy, not wanting to put in the work and the effort into actually building, forging, and maintaining biblical friendships. Yeah, I think I think Jonathan is spot on, and I highly recommend his book uh, as well to people. But the it's it's fascinating to me that publishers would say that sometimes I love publishers, they're <laughs> good friends, but uh, sometimes they have these really messed up concepts. And the, I think the reality is that people have messed up concepts, not just yeah. publishers. But man, working with uh, combat veterans in the work that I got to do in my PhD studies, I think people have this concept that men don't like friendships because it's somehow less masculine. Super macho guys can go it alone, that kind of thing. And the motto of this of this group is no one fights alone. It used to be no man fights alone, but they have women's programs too. And in the in the in the core of the program is the essential need for friends that are close and not just acquaintances, not just uh, get together and hang out. And and they definitely guys will bond over activities amazingly well and i think it's an essential part for churches to recognize we don't have to just get guys together and teach to them let's go get guys moving and doing stuff together and that'll really facilitate some of these great relationships but it does need to go deeper and these guys i mean you're talking hardened uh, marines force recon marines navy seals all this stuff and they are hugging each other and just grunt weeping with one another and it's an absolute epitome of masculinity to be willing to open up your heart to another man. And you see that exemplified. I think the example all of us would run to in scripture is David and Jonathan, right? David's, they're both warriors of warriors. And at the same time, they're singing love songs to each other as brothers uh, saying, man, you read that, that song that David sings after Saul uh, and Jonathan die. And it's just heart wrenching to think about losing your friend that way. So yeah, there's a lot of misperceptions out there. And I think sometimes we we allow ourselves to be duped by these false portrayals yeah. of masculinity and culture. Yeah, I, I think that's spot on. And I thought about it too. Like I've seen that exact, the exact same thing in the midst of the church. And I think that one of the most powerful things we can do as the church, I mean, just in, in the event that there's there are pastors tuning in and pastors watching, it is for pastors to model this. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I think this is why a healthy plurality of leadership of, of elders is so important that not just like colleagues that are, that are working together, but, but ones who are, are engaged in the work of, of ministry together for the sake of the Lord and, and through that building friendships, like genuine friendships and modeling friendships, facilitating friendships, uh, even uh, among themselves. I think sometimes one of the things that perpetuates that go it alone masculinity, right, is in the church is when that's the lifestyle of a uh, pastor. Yes. Yeah. Right. And it just, oh, okay. Like we're supposed to follow you as you follow Christ. And so I guess that's what it looks like. And I think that the more the pastors even fight mm -hmm. to build genuine friendships and build genuine friendships in the body, which I know for some is difficult. They're in different places where that's not particularly easy, but I think the more that we can do that as, as pastors, the more we can model it, the more it will shape the church and, and the men in our mm -hmm. church. And Scott, you, you shook a nerve with me there. I think uh, I, I tell everybody all the time, if at seminary or college, if you're in ministry, if you're an elder in the church, you have to read Dangerous Calling. Paul Tripp, I know he was working on a follow-up to that. And I think his new book coming out on 12 
points of leadership in the church. And I know talking to him, he wanted to do a follow-up to Dangerous Calling to help elders understand this. But man, there are so many lies that pastors believe about friendships. And we hear all the, man, I got yeah. burned yeah. Uh, by a friend I shared with, that kind of thing. And it, and it facilitates and it fosters this isolationism and this idea that I can't have close intimate friends within the church mm-hmm. and oh brother man that is just and, and dangerous calling really tracks that mentality is one of the big minefields that leads mm-hmm. to so many other problems I think that this part of the conversation makes a good segue Scott since you just were talking I'm going to keep the mic on you for a few minutes because we're, you know, we're talking about male friendships and how necessary they are, I'd love for you to help us dive into the topic of accountability. And especially in the context of male friendships, especially when the friend that we're trying to walk with is struggling with a destructive habit, maybe pornography addiction, maybe enslavement to alcohol or drugs, or just destructive habits or behavior. How can we be a friend to someone that requires us to maybe even have to speak hard truths in a loving, grace-filled way? Can you talk a bit about that? I love this question because I think that in the midst of like the ideal, right, and the beauty of friendship, like you said, it, it doesn't always look that way because we're fallen because we live in a fallen world. And so there's all sorts of messes we engage in and find ourselves in, in, in the midst of. And, and I think historically, one of the, the things the church has done a lot, and maybe put a lot of emphasis on, is accountability, right? Accountability groups, accountability partners, and, and things like that, and which I think is, is, is really needed and really important. I, I also think that, that sometimes we, we get it a little bit uh, upside down, though, in the form of the relationship, where we, we, we see accountability is the primary goal of the relationship and then kind of the other relationship is subservient to that but like that's really the primary means is accountability where i think that in in scripture i think that there's a reason why you know we don't have a direct command right that thou shalt be accountable to one another i mean you know or we keep one another accountable because i think that it accountability is just a natural byproduct of a genuine engaged pursuing relationship if we have this fundamentally loving interested compassionate relationship accountability like keeping one another accountable knowing about what's going on in one another's life is just going to be a natural byproduct of that type of, of of deep relationship. And so, um, I mean, yes, if someone's caught up in a, in a destructive or repetitive behavior, one of the things that will be helpful is accountability. But again, like the truth is, right, God wants to break that habit. He wants to, 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 to grow us out of that, not just because I'm afraid of the shame that's going to come when I have to tell you about it, right? God wants to help us break out of our bad habits as we're captivated by his glory, as we're captivated by his love, and as we're compelled by that, that worship to, to increasingly honor him and, and, and love him with our lives. And so, but, but still, like, I think accountability is a, is a helpful tool. And so, I mean, I think if you have a friend who's struggling, who's maybe even caught up in sin, um, I think of Galatians 6, right? You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, right? So well, what, is, what do you do? What, what does accountability, what does that relationship look like? Well, in the midst of that, of being caught up in sin, God calls us to, to pray for that person regularly right it consistently he he calls us to pursue that person regularly and consistently to, to not leave them alone right to, to matthew 18 go and tell your brother right and, and and if he doesn't listen to you like bring more right like just continue 
after him, uh, to, to exhort him constantly, right? Hebrews tells us every day, right? As long as it's called today, we're supposed to be exhorting one another, which means calling one another, I mean, reminding one another of, of, of truth of what we're doing, and, and, and to renewing their minds, right? In the Romans 12, right? Being transformed by the renewal of our minds daily. And so if we're, if we're doing these things regularly and actively and constantly, if you're praying for someone continually and you're pursuing them and you're exhorting them and you're seeking to renew their mind, accountability is going to be a natural byproduct of that, right? You're, you're going to inevitably talk about the, the, the areas and the particularly difficult areas of sin in their life. You're also going to experience more than that, right? Because the relationship isn't, you know, your accountability partner asks, have you sinned this week? And you're like, nope. Like, okay, great. Sanctification has been achieved, right? Like the, the, the reality is, it's right. I, wish, I, I mean, you know, like I, I've experienced that. And, and in, you know, in like an accountability group, you're like, okay, check in the box. Everybody good. Like nobody looked at porn this week. Okay, cool. Like let's, you know, let's talk about baseball. But we're infinitely more complex beings than that. And our hearts may be motivated to break our habits for all sorts of reasons some gospel oriented and some not. And so accountability needs to be a, a part of that larger, more complex friendship relationship that is striving to point one another to Christ, striving to renew one another's minds with the gospel of the Lord. And ultimately that, that doesn't overlook sins, but also doesn't oversimplify a person's experience to just one struggle with 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 one sin and so i I think as we do that 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 actually creates a even more genuine accountability and even more any and an even more consistent accountability so i think when you're just trying to be an accountability partner you hear no three weeks in a row and you stop asking Mm -hmm. but when you're a friend right who genuinely loves and cares and is pursuing and and knows that they're called to be engaged in their life then that it's going to be an ongoing genuine conversation and 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 as this struggles with sin shift your your conversation and your uh purpose is going to shift as, as well excellent things to think about i want to have jonathan we're going to kind of wrap up the mail to mail context of this conversation <laughs> because i want I'm watching the clock and i know that we're all really eager to have a few questions about friendship between the sexes and so i want to be sure we leave ample time for that so before we leave the male to male relationships i'm going to go ahead and ask jonathan you know okay so we we see the value we see why these things are helpful what some of the dangers are of not pursuing biblical friendship so if someone is listening to this conversation they say you know what i now recognize i'm missing this aspect of my life and maybe it's even hindering my christian maturity because I'm not connected in a way that is meaningful to other Christian men, Jonathan, what can they do? What's the next steps? How do you suggest (laughs) that men move forward in their pursuit of forging biblical friendships in a, not an intentional way, but maybe a proactive way. Do you have some, some stuff to share for that? Yeah. You know, one of the consistent things we see Jesus doing in the gospels is that he's looking, he's looking at people. And uh, Paul Miller in his book, Love Walked Among Us, he has a great line. He says, loving begins with looking. And I just tell guys, look around. Uh, I, I, I'm actually not a big fan of trying to pair guys up with certain age groups or, hey, you like basketball, so you find somebody else who likes basketball. If you love Christ, if you believe the good news of the gospel, that's really all you need. Friendship very much is a relationship that's predicated on reciprocity. So the reciprocity is is really rooted in our common faith in Christ. And when I think 
that guys try to center their friendships purely on geography, purely on a common interest, purely on a stage of life, we actually miss out on valuable opportunities for interdisciplinary cross-generational relationships. So just look around. I'll tell people, say, hey, where are you sitting on a Sunday morning? And, and again, it might be a little bit different now in COVID days, but who's around you? Look around. Go up to somebody. Talk to them. Move towards them. You know, the, the, the two questions that, that we're always wanting to, to use and to have in our back pocket are, how are you doing? And how can I pray for you, right? Those, those two questions asked in a variety of different permutations will always be able to help you move past what I say is just the superficial. Because how are you doing is different than what are you doing or what are you up to this weekend? One, one wants content. The other one wants process. I'm not, not that I'm not interested in what you're doing, but I'm actually much more interested in how you're doing. And I think guys probably tend to do better with what are you doing? What are you up to? What'd you do this week? We are less skilled at, hey, how are you doing? What's hard for you? What's difficult? And then that's, of course, where the second question of how can I pray for you uh, engages. I think that there's a variety of different things that guys need to do. I think uh, hospitality is, again, something typically that we've confined to more, hey, this is what the women in the church do. But I think hospitality, friendship is hospitality is an undiscovered way for guys, that we have other men over to our homes, our driveways, that we invite them into our lives, that we share meals together, we schedule regular times to meet and to encourage one another, we go on vacations together, we live life together, we weep together, uh, we bear burdens together. Uh, all of that can be done, again, in a variety of different ways based on wherever you're at, but you have to do it. You actually have to make the plan and, and unfortunately, I, I, again, I'll go back to the laziness uh, portion. I just find a lot of guys are not willing to put the effort into friendships. And, and, and unfortunately, I think some of the things then that a lot of guys experience in counseling as it relates to problems, whether it be pornography or addiction or marital problems, are very much the direct result of not having relationships, not having friendships. Um, so, so that forging a biblical friendship I think we may be overcomplicated. Look around. Who's near you? Who, who shares your common faith in Christ? That's really all that you need. Start from there and move towards them. Awesome. Well, I am just really thankful, you guys. This has been a tremendous uh, amount of really encouraging um, ideas and biblical reflections. So I'm so thankful. I'd love to have us spend the rest of our time in discussing a bit about friendship with the opposite sex. I would love for Curtis to actually take the lead on this because he was going to present a workshop on the topic of cultivating friendships with our spouses and what that can look like. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I just wanted to say one thing kind of following up on that on that last part, and I think it's a good segue because it, it's broadly applicable to any relationship is that in accountability and how we pursue a deeper friendship. Uh, and I love what Scott said, like accountability is not a list of questions. It's a, it's a genuine outflow of, of real relationships is if you are a person on this earth and you've never had somebody come to you uh, with concerns about sin in your life, then there's a problem. The reason for that is not because you're perfect, because uh, you're not, you're still a sinner. So the, the question is, are you the type of person who's open to accepting that? And have you surrounded yourself with the type of people who are willing to give that 
And then do you have that deep of, an, of a relationship with them? And I think that flows over to the question that you asked about spouses is, is your spouse as well should be one of the people who has permission from you in a sense. I mean, you should have an open enough, enough relationship that you can talk about anything, including your sin, because your spouse has more insight into the struggles in your life than anybody else, or they should, uh, if they're living with you appropriately day in, day out in a genuinely totally open, naked and unashamed type of relationship, they should be able to approach you and you should be open to receiving that. We don't always do it perfectly, but uh, if that's not happening in your marriage, then something something is awry. I think one of, one of the things that is important for us to understand about developing a friendship with your spouse is there's lots of opinions and lots of ideas out there. I've heard people out and out say your spouse should not be your best friend. Uh, and I've heard lots of people say your spouse should be your best friend. So there's a diversity of opinions there. But the reality is, is your, your spouse, the relationship you have with your spouse is the most intimate earthly relationship that you will have if you're married. And if you're single, you can have a great intimate relationship with other people. It's just not, um, there's different aspects of it that in a marriage relationship. And, and part of the problem with male female relationships, which I know we'll get into as we, as we close out the rest of this is that as the, overemphasis on sex. And I think the church is unfortunately has fallen into that trap as well in a number of different ways. And if we enter into marriage thinking that great sex is the pinnacle of a married relationship or any human relationship, then we're missing out on a lot of different, the way I like to put it is we're, we're maximizing a minor portion of our life to the point that it eclipses the rest of life. Because if you think about just life in general, your sexuality is a, is a, is a small part, uh, but our culture and the society we live in, it just makes it everything now. And we in the church have bought into that in a lot of different ways that we talk about marriage, we talk about dating, we talk about purity, we talk about all this stuff. And it sets us up to focus on the wrong parts of, of marriage. So Sex is great. Sex is good. It's a gift of God. It was his idea. Enjoy it. It's wonderful in marriage, but marriage needs to be far, far more than that. And sometimes I think what you find is that sometimes couples who entered into it and, and sex was so paramount to their relationship, the friendship is stalled. It's, it's not developed as much as it should be because it's it, the, the focus of the relationship was on something that is not designed specifically around building a friendship and a relationship. And I love what, uh, I would echo exactly what uh, Jonathan said about common interests is not how we develop a relationship in a marriage. The reality is activities are great. Activities are wonderful. I did mention before, like get guys moving, get guys doing stuff together and they'll talk. But that doesn't mean we make this focus of our relationship a commonality around an activity. We all love to shoot basketball. So we go make friends with basketball buddies because that cuts out everybody over a certain age, everybody under a certain age, all the non-athletic people, you know, we just begin to isolate if we center our things around activities. Similarly with marriage is, is your relationship may not, you may not have a lot of common interests. Now, there are times where you and love sacrificially go and participate in activity with your spouse that maybe you don't particularly enjoy because it's an act of sac- sacrificial love. Uh, and then there are things that you are going to share and it's great. Foster those things, encourage those things. 
But the reality is, like Jonathan said, if at the center of our relationship is the shared love of Christ and the core values around the gospel and Christianity, the fact the activity is the peripheral thing, not the central thing. The relationship with the person is central. So you can go out and do anything and have fun doing it if you love the person and you both love Christ. Now, that's going to be complicated, uh, especially for couples who are who are married to an unbelieving spouse, it makes it hard. It makes it more difficult. But again, kind of echoing back what I talked about the enemies is if Paul's called us and and the Holy Spirit, God has called us to reach out in love, active love towards people who are trying to kill us. How much more then should we reach out in active love, self-sacrificial love to our spouse who is an unbeliever who needs, who needs Jesus so you're going to, I, I do believe that unbelieving or spouses who are Christians who are married to unbelieving spouses will, will probably need a greater supplement of Christian relationship than those who are two Christians who are married to one another. Not saying that Christians who are married to one another don't need friends, but if you are a believer married to an unbeliever, there's not that shared core of who you are, your love of Christ. So you need to make sure you have good relationships outside that are doing that. Uh, and pray for the salvation of your spouse, which you probably already are, so that you can begin to share that. Ways that you foster that are, what are you talking about? If your friendship is rela- is is focused around those activities, you probably are going to talk about the last museum you visited or, you know, going on those bike rides together and stuff. And there's nothing wrong with that if you do those things. But the core of your relationship, your prayer time together, the conversations you have at dinner, the conversations you have with one another when it's just the two of you, need to be about the deep things of the Lord. Uh, Not exclusively, but if that is absent, then you're not really developing and growing in a deep love. Asking not a list of accountability questions, but the questions that Jonathan mentioned you do to develop a relationship with anybody, you need to ask those of your spouse. How are you doing? How can I be praying for you? Those the same relationship building things that you do with anybody, you need to do that with your spouse. And don't assume that you know those answers. Keep following up. I love learning new things about my wife all the time. And it's, it's amazing. It's great. And it does deepen that relationship. So again, the, the, so much more could be said, but there's a, there's a little bit. Yeah, I just recently went through Brad Abigny's uh, sermon audio series on gospel treason, and it was actually something that my husband and I worked through because it's just interesting when you take a look at, you know, desires in your marriage relationship. And for us, it was like we needed to recognize that our greatest desire for our spouse should not be that they serve our desires. It should be that we desire them to be conformed into the image of Christ. And so how can we come along? alongside them and encourage them and and equip them and uplift them and rebuke them when necessary. What does that look like? But when we have our idols, you know, Brad's book is talking about idols. And if you're interested in idols of the heart and heart change, you can listen to the podcast interview when he talks about uh, idolatry in depth. But it was a really great awakening just for us and our marriage relationship because idolatry was hindering our friendship because we wanted one another to serve the things that we thought were most valuable to us. And so it it really was a paradigm shift for my husband and I am really thankful for it. And now because of that, we can see the Holy Spirit changing the desires of our heart to where if something's going on or we're having an argument, my greatest desire in that moment need not be that he 
acquiesce to everything that I'm asking, but how can we help each other to pursue Christ in the midst of conflict or hurt feelings or whatever the case may be? Does anyone else have anything to add to that before we move on? I'll just make one one quick comment on what Curtis said is, you know, everything that he said is so helpful about friendship within marriage. I actually find in a lot of marriage counseling, I do that friend, that, that marriage is the loneliest relationship uh, because husbands and wives aren't developing good friendships. And I find that there's a, a well-known Swiss psychiatrist, and he said that loneliness is the nucleus of all that we do in psychiatry. And it's a bit of a hyperbole, but I think it's meant to emphasize the point that so many of our problems relationally, especially in marriage, I actually do think are rooted in loneliness, that we're not relating to each other as husband and wife, as friends. And that's actually an aspect of your relationship that I do think continues on in heaven, right? In Matthew 19, Jesus tells the, the Sadducees, you know, there's, there's no marriage in heaven, there's no sex in heaven, nobody's being given. But what we do see is a siblinghood in, in heaven. We see each other relating to one another. So husbands and wives, why not invest in that aspect of your relationship, which will be eternal, and which will give testimony and witness to that eschatological end that you're created for. And unfortunately, I, I do think a lot of husbands and wives have missed out on that opportunity because, as Curtis said, our culture has raised sex as, as the pinnacle of what a thriving, flourishing uh, relationship looks like. One quick side thing. Um, Daryl Burling uh, is a friend of mine. He's a biblical counselor in New Zealand, and he wrote a, a dissertation on the fact that marriage is more than covenant, that it's a covenant designed to create union. And uh, he did a, a synopsis kind of of it of, for a blog on the BCC's blog. And I think it really helped me. And I think hopefully a lot of other people shift in thinking about what the marriage relationship is even supposed to look yeah. like, but it is reflecting Christ in the church. Covenant has certain things and it definitely is covenant as part of marriage. But sometimes I think we've said marriage is covenant and it's, it's more than that. And the union aspect of that relationship is really great. So I encourage people to check that out. Daryl Burling uh, wrote that. So. Thank you for, for offering that resource for us. Well, I've saved the best for last, and we are probably going to run just a few minutes over, but I want to have Scott take a turn, and this will probably end up being something that all of our guests chime in on. But Scott, you were, again, were basic these questions on workshops that you were all preparing to deliver at the Summer Institute. So Scott, I'd love for you to help us dive into what does an appropriate relationship between a Christian man and a Christian woman look like, not inside the context of marriage? Yeah, you know, a lot of these questions are based on the, uh, the you know, our sessions from the conference. Curtis, I'm starting to feel like IBCD is just like testing us out. Be like, do we really want them to teach on that <laughs> next year? Right? <laughs> when we do this again? No, but um, you know, I, I think this is a this is something that while it is uniquely complicated and there's lots of factors to consider, I, I think this is a question that we actually tend to overcomplicate. Um, I think we tend to overcomplicate the question of trying to consider how men and women should relate to one another in, in, in the church. I mean, my short answer is that the relationship between men and women in the church should look similar to the relationship between brothers and sisters. Calling each other brothers and sisters in Christ is something that's, that's genuinely true because of our shared father, right? Because of the mm -hmm. fact that we have been adopted into the same family. I mean, to, to exactly what Jonathan just said, that's an eternal reality, right? We are going to be brothers and sisters adopted into the same family 
forever. And so you know, when we ask the question, like, okay, what, what should men and women's relationships look like? I, I think we, we can, we can break it down with a bunch of different, you know, rules and regulations and expectations and things like that. But really, I think if we're captivated by the picture of a brother and sister, I think it looks a lot like that. I mean, when, when I was, when I was younger, I was taught and fairly firmly believed that men and women could not be friends, right? That it just wasn't possible that particularly in the church, men should be friends with men, women should be friends with women. And you, you overlap just long enough to like, see if there's somebody that God wants you to marry. But I think, and both of you both mentioned exactly what I was going to say. I think this comes from the assumption that for an over-sexualized mm-hmm. understanding of humanity mm-hmm. um, and our world, our, our <laughs> world is overly sexualized and, and it promotes an overly sexualized view of who we are as persons, who we are as image bearers. And I think that the, the, the fear of even just any type of friendship between men and women that exists in the church is really a, a byproduct of that oversexualization and buying into that, that, that oversexualization. But the sanctification that comes through Christ tells us a different story, right? And then the hope we have for Christianity tells us a, a different story, right? God's call for us is to be engaged with one another in ways that are compassionate and caring and engaged and kind and and I was going to say intentional, <laughs> purposeful. Everybody can use the word. <laughs> as long as the right. but, but, moved. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. It's inten- yeah, intention moved. And without being sexual or without being yeah. sexualized. And, and of course, like on a, on, on a case-by-case basis, like there's going to be wisdom. Wisdom is going to be required to navigate mm-hmm. that. And wisdom will determine what, any specific relationship with one specific particular Christian should look like with one other particular mm-hmm. Christian, right? What a, what a relationship with a particular Christian man should look like with a particular Christian woman or vice versa. Like wisdom is going to dictate that based on all sorts of different factors and where temptation or sinful motivations exist, they, they should at least, at least initially be avoided and sought to be sanctified. However, if, if men in the church have no form of Christian friendship with any women other than their wives or no relationships period then for those that are single, right. Or vice versa. I I think we're all missing out on a huge part of what God designed his church to be, which is a family in the, in the Lord's gracious providence. He's given our, our family, two boys and two girls. And I think actually the, I see this in our kids at home in a host of different ways. Our, our, our oldest is a boy, then comes a girl, then a boy, then a girl. So we've got kind of all these like different combinations of, of, of kids. But I actually think that even in our home, they provide a, a good example, right? There's, there's certain things that our boys do with each other, that our boys only do with each other, and that our girls only do with each other, right? They, they change clothes in the same room. They sleep in the same room. They, they, they talk about gender specific topics, right? And there's things that they do that, that, that are unique to their maleness and their femaleness. There's also certain dynamics of their relationships that, that our boys share with one another because they're boys and that our girls share with one another because they're girls, right? There's a unique intimacy. There's a camaraderie. There's a mutual understanding. There's a uniqueness to the relationship of that as gendered beings. However, each of our boys also has a unique relationship with each of our girls. Our oldest boy has a unique relationship with our youngest girl, 
right? As he takes care of her, as he like, as she like looks up to him. As she, our our oldest boy and our oldest girl have a unique relationship to one another because they share more in common than with the other kids, right? And 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 they and they speak to one another. They're at a, they're at a, a maturity place where they they speak into one another's lives in a unique way that any of the other kids can't do. There's a lot there, and 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 the analogy will break down at some point, but. <laughs> But I believe it's a, it is a snapshot of what God designed his church to be, which is a web of relationships, which is a, a web of friendships, where our maleness and our femaleness are, are fundamental parts of the equation, but where they're not decisively barriers to learning from one another, to caring for one another, to loving one another as members of another. And so I, I think... Um, God calls us into relationships with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ um, that, that look like, that, that in that sense, are modeled off of brother and sister relationships and, and that manifest genuine love. This is, I think this is particularly important, right? As complementarians who believe that, that only men should be pastors or called to be pastors, the women in my church need to know that a pastor loves them. And if a woman can't be a pastor and then therefore like know that like they're like they need to know that not just like oh I shepherd them and like but they I genuinely care for them and not only that but they need to know within their community groups and within their relationships right that there are brothers in Christ whether they're single or married whether they're they have a believing spouse or an unbelieving spouse and, and again like there, there's there's dangers there that we need to be aware of and be wise about and so we we need to navigate that with wisdom but I think the overall, the, the call of brother sisterhood in our relationships is what male-female relationships, what God designed male-female relationships, particularly in the church. I love Scott's use of the family analogy. And that's what exactly what Paul tells Timothy, right? In 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, is that how older and younger men and women should treat one another. And he's writing to a young pastor and he's saying, uh, younger women treat as a sister with all purity. So there's, a, there's an acknowledgement there that with all purity that there is the temptation uh, of sexual immorality there. But when you put it into the context of, of relationship uh, with a sister, it just removes the romantic element to it and focuses on, you leave open all the other aspects of relationship. And I think that's sometimes a tendency we have is we focus on what we can't do instead of focusing on all the things that we can do. And a, a couple like broader mindset things I think we need to watch out for as biblical counselors. I think the, one, the human tendency, not just biblical counseling tendency, the human tendency that when we see abuses, we run as far in the opposite direction as possible. I uh, read a lot of different blogs on this topic. Uh, and one of them pointed out, I think Jen Wilkin on the Gospel Coalition talked about the fact that every relationship is risky, but you don't stop going to a mechanic just because a mechanic might cheat you or you don't, disassociate with pastors because there are pastors who are abusive or jerks or power mongers, you know? So just because there are these abuses doesn't mean we cut off the entire aspect and possibility for relationship. I think with biblical counselors, we have to be more cautious of that tendency because when we are engaging, when we're hearing these stories, we're usually hearing the negative, right? We're engaging with people who've gone through adultery. We're engaging with people who've been cheated on because that's the nature. It's kind of like police officers. Uh, if you ask them what the first thing that comes to mind when you, when you say priest or troop leader, they think pedophile because every interaction they've ever had with somebody in that 
profile fits that category. We have to acknowledge as biblical counselors, we are working with the, the brokenness more often than not. And that ignores the many relationships that are good between men and women who aren't married within the church that need to happen. Uh, so just a couple of things to keep in mind as we address this topic. Anything to add, Jonathan? Yeah, I mean, I just echo everything. I, I personally would probably take it just a one degree closer, and this is my personal view. I actually do think that male-female friendships are necessary, and I take that from Adam and Eve, that God created diversity. He created a binary on purpose, and again, as Scott had already mentioned, that Genesis 2 passage is not primarily speaking about marriage, but about the need for a relationship that embodies and reflects intra-Trinitarian relationships. So, I actually do think it's good for men to have friendships with people of the opposite gender with all the caveats that have already been mentioned. But again, as Curtis said, let's not take the exception to the rule and build the theology on that. Let's take what we can do, what is available to us by way of building healthy relationships and really strive hard to be Christ-centered in that. Well, I think that we have just covered so much ground. I did not think we were going to get to all the questions that I had, but we certainly did. And I'm not too much over on our time. So again, I think these are just really great things to reflect on. I just want to take a minute to thank all of you for taking time on a Saturday morning. And God bless Scott for waking up in California so early to join us and have to be on his A game to have this conversation. And thank you to all of your families who have let you sacrifice a Saturday morning because I know I and also to my husband, thank you for taking the kids so we can have this chat. And thank you guys. So you guys want to say goodbye before we before we close out? I wish thank we you, could Christine. talk more, but thank we're you out of time. Jonathan Scott, thanks for this so good to be with you. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode. If you enjoyed today's conversation, why not subscribe to the podcast? That way you'll be notified when new weekly episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help podcast a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help podcast.